look at the business and, and see, okay, what are really the, the risks and opportunities that you could bring to the attention of, of the business leaders to start to start addressing. You can't throw aside all of the contracts you have to redline and go after this. Uh, but if you start and just do a little bit at a time, it, it really builds. Welcome to the Council Podcast, a podcast about life as an in-house lawyer. I'm your host, Mel Scott, Senior Legal Counsel at a global technology company based in Brisbane, Australia. I am passionate about all things in-house and am so excited to share insights, interview key people in our profession and demystify in-house practice. My guest today is Christine Yuri. Christine joins us from Portland, Oregon, where she serves as the Chief Sustainability and Legal Officer at NG Impact, a global company committed to accelerating the sustainability transformation. Christine believes that everyone has something to contribute to the most impactful issues of our time, including climate change, environment, human rights, social equity, and racial justice. Christine's goal is to help members of the in-house legal community to leverage their daily work to solve these fundamental challenges. I was struck by the optimistic outlook that Christine shared on the current state of corporate sustainability efforts. It is always enlightening to speak with in-house lawyers who truly live and breathe their values within their vocation. It is also by pure chance that I'm releasing this episode on Earth Day 2021. But what a fitting day it is for this conversation. Enjoy this episode with Christine Yuri. Christine, I have pressed record and I wanted to thank you for, for joining me. It's your evening and I didn't check with you, but where are we actually talking to you from in the U.S.? Ah, I'm in Portland, Oregon, so on the West Coast, it's about 5 p.m. here. Let's get into it. Christine, just for fun, if you had a limitless credit card and you didn't have to pay it back, you could only spend it at one shop, what shop would that be and why? I've actually spent a long time thinking about this since I heard your first podcast when I listened to it. And uh, I've come up with one, it's called Design Within Reach, and they do a uh, beautiful modern furniture and we've all spent so much time at home i think i've been at home 23 hours a day for 12 months and and just a total refresh would be amazing that sounds fantastic and you're absolutely right i've spent more time in my apartment than i ever thought i would and it's it's getting a little bit uh you know a little drab myself so i'm going to get you to take me with you we're going to do some online shopping with that that Mm. fake credit card that sounds awesome (laughs) Thank you. I love I love to start in that way just to get a sense of of my guest and and what's kind of on their mind. So I love that. But to the legal things, I'd love to take you back in time, really, to get a sense of what your first legal role was and then how you navigated and and found your way to in-house practice. So my my first legal role was working for a federal district court judge. I was a, a clerk. And I don't know if you have the equivalent in Australia, but here in the U.S., it's it's common for newly graduated attorneys to spend a year working for a judge. And you basically help the judge write all of their opinions, do research, you know, help help draft and assist and 
and it's a really wonderful experience. From from there, I went into a law firm. It's it's fairly common when you start in a clerkship because you have the experience of, of working in a court and seeing lawyers practice at trial that you move into a litigation practice. So I moved into business litigation at a firm here in Portland, Oregon in 2004. Uh, so I've been here for, for quite a while now. And actually, uh, my first case was the Enron defense, working with one of the Enron directors, which, yeah, it seems it's so long ago now, but I, you know, I can't imagine how many people, you know, kind of cut their teeth in their, their legal practice on, on these Enron cases because there were just squads of associates. And then I did the litigation for about two years and determined I really wanted to be earlier in the process. I new cases would come across my desk and I would think, okay, if I had just gotten, you know, involved earlier, we we never would have ended up in this dispute. And you know, that that earlier involvement's really a business business practice. Uh, so I, I asked my firm was very nice to to accommodate me moving to our, our transactional section. And I was there for about six years and just got excellent training in everything from M&A to, to IP to bankruptcy, a lot of different areas. And, and I was just tended to be a generalist. I, I never really specialized, but I, I did get into my business clients, their business operations quite a bit. So after, after being engaged in that way for quite a while, I realized that I, my, my true success would most likely be in-house where being a generalist and being engaged in the business is really the bread and butter of, of what you do every day. So I, yeah. And so I was fortunate. I saw an ad on LinkedIn, not LinkedIn, on Indeed, just a, a posting and applied uh, for for an in-house position, and I was fortunate to get it. I still send a little thank you to my hiring manager uh, who's left the company, but every every year on the anniversary. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> I love that. On the continuum, if we think of of in-house as uh, as one end, I, I often think as the you know the litigation space and the court system on the other end in terms of the style of practice. And for you to make your way from that one end of the continuum into the the front end, the M and A, the transactional, and then even further towards that that commercial front end space into in-house, I, I feel like that's an uncommon journey. Do you? Think do you think that most lawyers in private practice who are in the litigation space discount their ability to to move to the transactional or even into the in-house? Yeah, I, I think it can be difficult uh, in your career when, when you're earlier. It's, it's easier, and particularly if you're at a, a law firm that has, has a diverse practice. But I'd been doing litigation for a few years, and I can still remember walking into the managing partner's office and telling him, I don't want to do litigation anymore and asking him for a position in the, the business team. And, you know, it was a big inhale of breath for me because I, it could have been no. And it, at that point, it, you, it's kind of like, okay, what do you do? It's a, it was great. They were open and I was able to develop that skill set, but very, very fortunate to have great mentors there. I speak to early career lawyers often, and I, rem- I remember my own experience. It really felt like your first 
practice group area as the private practice lawyer was like, you are putting your stake in the ground and you're going to have to stay here forever and good luck to you because you don't really know what you're practicing yet, but you're going to have to make a choice and this will define your career. So so the stakes are high and I think there's a lot of pressure that we we can put on ourselves to kind of get it right when we really don't know what we're <laughs> really yeah. in for yet. So I love that you were able to back yourself and ask for a pretty big transition to to the other space and and then opened that door to the in-house side of things. Yeah, and moving from a, a business practice at a law firm to in-house is much easier than going from a litigation practice just in terms of getting the position. I think you, there's great arguments to be made in terms of skill transferability, but that is a leap too. And, and it's interesting now when I hire attorneys, I, I always know I, I've hired attorneys both from law firms and from other in-house positions. And, and it's, a, it's a little bit more of a gamble when you hire somebody from a law firm because you, you, the change is so dramatic. You know, is this person really going to like it? Is, are they really going to be a fit? So there's, there's a couple leaps in there. So you've been practicing, so by my count, it's six, seven years in, in the firm. How did you come to open your mind to the possibility that in-house practice might be your next career step? Oh, I, yeah, I was at the point in the firm where typically people start specializing and really uh, niching down what they do. And I just did not want to do that. I loved being involved in so many different things. And I wanted to be able to continue to be broad and to be successful being very broad in the things that I do. Uh, so I, I realized that was another environment. And then I was also kind of creating a different purpose. I, I wanted the, the, yeah, the, I wanted to have what would feel like more of a, a substantive purpose to my role. I think some people get that from a law firm practice and, and I just, it just wasn't my thing. And so I looked for a company that, that was really deeply committed to, to being purpose-driven and, and I found that with the company that I'm at today. That's fantastic. Being driven by by your values there. And it's very similar to mindset to where I, I was myself, because I was looking for more connection with the outcomes and, and the work that I was producing felt like it, I was doing that in a firm in a silo. And I didn't have the context. I didn't know the personalities and the people necessarily behind the the advice or the strategy and to see to see it through after I gave my advice was something that was enticing so obviously we get that in-house we we were able to to give the advice but also have all of that context and and know the business so I yeah I can totally resonate with that and I think it's a really common decision point for for a lot of lawyers in in their careers I love that you mentioned being purpose-driven and purpose-led both yourself and then finding a company that was aligning with that. Can you tell us a bit about what that looks like for you? It's about thinking on your impact beyond the financial and and your impact in, it sounds lofty, but in in making the the world a better place somehow. And for, for everybody that looks 
a little differently. For my company, it's about about sustainability, about focused on the environment, about stopping climate change, really having those meaningful impacts on the world in terms of how we help our clients every day. And you know, it's something that just really resonates with me is, is pursuing that, that sustainability and environmental purpose. How does the company help its, its clients achieve that? What, what kind of services does it offer? Our clients are large global companies and uh, in governments. And what we do is provide advice and counsel on how to really build a sustainability transformation roadmap. So we will work with a C-suite start with data collection all the way up to building models, building the plan to see you know, how, let's say you're uh, a large company and you see this coming out in the, the news all the time, you just set a goal of becoming carbon neutral or carbon negative. How do you get there? It's a, it's a long journey and it, it starts with a lot of, it starts with a lot of data collection and then you, you need to work through and identify your opportunities and have a very um, robust plan to get there. So we help bring in the expertise to create those. That's amazing. And talk about doing good in the world. You know, like you're really there actually guiding companies that, that have a massive footprint in so many spaces beyond economically, but, but socially and, and in terms of the environmental challenges and helping them actually get a plan to, to make, you know, actual change. That, that sounds kind of taking the, the lofty inspirational goal and turning it into something practical and, and pragmatic that a corporate entity can actually implement. You mentioned the word sustainability, and I have a sense generally of what that means, but I'd love to hear from you what that, that corporate sustainability really is and, and the, the breadth of that concept. It's a really good question because sustainability, it's definitely a buzzword. People use it quite a bit, and it, it can feel very slippery in terms of what it means, but I, I think that the most important Thing to understand about the word is it's really about time and when when you look at a dic- dictionary definition it is it will be something like capable of being sustained there's kind of more poetic versions I, I like meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of the future to meet its own needs if, uh, I think a prettier version I, but it's really future looking and it's about making sure that your actions and activities today can continue into the future without causing harm. And so the interesting thing about that, so if you if you add corporate in front of it, then it's about your your company making sure your company's actions can be sustained into the future. And it's it's not just limited to the environmental. So you hear the, the phrase ESG or environmental social governance. And if you think about, okay, what does it, what do we need to be sustainable? It, climate change is huge. The environment is huge, but there's also uh, social conditions and human rights and justice in for, for workers. There's many uh, different aspects of what it, 
it takes to create this sustainable future. Uh, I think you, we hear mostly about environmental, and I talk a lot about environmental and carbon and climate change, because that right now feels like the greatest threat to our ability to maintain the future. If you're looking at your, your particular company in a corporate sustainability fashion, you know, what is the most pressing area of that for your company, depending on your activities and, and your reach and your impact may be different. In Australia, we, we do use the term corporate social responsibility, CSR. That really seems to be the, the buzzword or the acronym that is very broad and, and tends to cover the, the topics that you're, you're mentioning. I, I think my understanding is that, yeah, beyond the environmental, but also to the way that you interact with your workers, your supply chain, modern slavery legislation and, and understanding the impacts in every way, really, of how you conduct your business. So it's, it's a huge piece in itself. I'd love to get your thought on how the legal department can be involved or or how they should be involved in managing compliance, but also beyond compliance, just setting the tone and setting that, that corporate, I suppose, the, the buy-in for looking and taking these issues seriously. Yeah, I think it's a really exciting time to be in an in-house corporate department because there is there's so much opportunity to be a part of this story. Uh, there, in terms of corporate sustainability or corporate social responsibility, the legal teams have often more reach and power to impact these things than I think they may realize. And, and I kind of think about that ability in, in three buckets. So if you're, in, if you're running legal and compliance, usually ethics falls within that bucket. Uh, you also have compliance and then you have a lot of connections. So, on an, on an ethics front, I think that that there's a huge opportunity to craft what it what it means to be an ethical corporation in a way that's bigger than uh, what it has been historically. Historically, it's been reduced a little bit too much to let's avoid corruption and bribery, which is important, but not in my view, that, that doesn't really just answer what it means to be ethical and trying to bring you know, to the company that moral compass and that spirit of good corporate citizenship, what is, let's really do the right thing and weaving that into the cultural foundation of the company. Right? I think in-house legal has, because they, you have the right uh, training and, and background in a lot of areas of ethics can really help be the compass there. Compliance is going to be a huge driver. So what you see right now coming out is a lot of regulatory requirements around the world expanding to require companies to uh, engage in climate disclosures and to be much more transparent. And it's not, once you get into climate disclosures, it's really not just limited to what is your footprint? Uh, a lot of times, they will they, the disclosures will also get into social issues. It can get cover areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And council is going to really have to know these requirements and be able to you know, read uh, the company's disclosure statements and and determine okay, are these right? And 
help companies figure out how to get them improved and better over time. And I, I just think there's huge opportunities because the legal department's so connected, so able to influence and bring people together to, to kind of supercharge all of those areas. We're preparing for our chat today. You said something which which really struck me. You said that there's a, a need to connect daily work with deeper meaning. The large commitments and pressures around corporate sustainability present a huge opportunity for in-house counsel to do this and that we're uniquely positioned. There is a good case there for that department to take the lead. Where would you suggest that in-house lawyers start if they're if they're starting to turn their mind to this space, what's what's the best way to eat the elephant, I suppose? I think that what you do has to really be sized to your company so that it, it makes sense. I mean, uh, if you're in a startup, it's absolutely not going to look the same as if you're in a multinational. Uh, but if, if, you, if this is an area where you have never been involved in before, I would start by first just going out and reading about what leading companies are doing. There's a ton of corporate sustainability reports uh, and disclosures out there, and those can just give you an idea of what the what the lay of the land is, what people are looking at, what the what the kind of language around it is, and then you know look at at your business and see what's happening. It, it could be that you have uh, somebody in charge of sustainability. If so, you know, go talk with that person and see what they're working on uh, and see where it is you could become engaged. If not, you could look at the business and, and see, okay, what are really the, the risks and opportunities that you could bring uh, to the attention of, of the business leaders to start, to start addressing. And it, it doesn't, it, it, you can't throw aside all of the contracts you have to redline and go after this. Uh, but if you start and just do a little bit at a time, it, it really builds the momentum. And what about the general counsel who may be coming into a new role and picking up a sustainability program that's, you know, kind of already in action to some point, or perhaps they've got the budget to actually go in and hire a sustainability officer or, or start to expand that function. What would you suggest to them to be thinking about if they want to improve the, the sustainability performance? There's a couple things. So first, the education piece is always really important before you start. But when you watch a, a new sustainability program, you always start by engaging your stakeholders. So you go and you know identify who your stakeholders are, your investors, your employees, your vendors. You know who are really the key people that are to whom your business success is is impactful. And then you go through a process of interviewing them to see what is important to them on a on a whole spectrum uh, of issues. And we actually. I have on our company website, we posted an example from our stakeholder engagement process that we did, but it covers you know, everything from ethics and diversity to labor rights to carbon, water, waste, whole range of issues. And you, know, you take that kind of feedback on what's really important to those outside uh, of your company and then bring it back in with your leadership team 
to look at it and it's not that you necessarily do those things that externally folks tell you are the most important things, but it, it's very critical feedback. And then you, you look at the range and say, okay, what's, what do we think is most critical for our business? And that, that will provide you a basis to develop a strategy for moving forward. And when you talk about stakeholders, we, we've got to think about the employees as well and asking them what they're looking for, I would suspect. Have you seen a trend for employees to be making decisions about where to spend their career and place their talent based on this alignment and this purpose with certain companies? Yes, absolutely. And and we're my company's a huge beneficiary of that because we have we're such a purpose-driven company that for for many of our employees that's why they choose to join us and why they choose to stay. And it's also if you if you look at it from your a general counsel and you're trying to put together the business case for your company to either become active or become more active in this area. You know, looking at talent uh, acquisition and retention, it's a it's a really big driver uh, for how how you can make sure that you keep your best talent moving forward. Yeah, for sure. I I, I suspected that might be the case. I want to lead you to another topic more broadly: your life as in-house counsel and what a typical day looks like for someone who is working at a, a sustainability company? Well, my life as, as in-house counsel has changed a lot over the years. So I've, I've been with my company for eight years now. And when I started, I started in just as a corporate counsel. And my focus was really being all things legal for, for one of our divisions. Uh, and over the last eight years, my, my role has uh, expanded and grown in different ways. And so now I have responsibility for our our global legal operations and also for our corporate sustainability program so that's that's within my perimeter and then our safety and facilities so this this last year i I have spent quite a bit of time as you can imagine on safety and crisis management so i i have a pretty broad uh, portfolio today of things and you just it's for me, I'll start out my day. I work quite a bit with Europe as it starts early, and it'll just be usually a lot of phone calls in the morning, kind of very different subjects from from our sustainability program to privacy to you know onto a risk management subject. Then, what are we going to do with the office remodel and how are what are we going to get out for COVID communications in the next you know, couple of weeks? Uh, to address the, the different changing conditions. So it's uh, kind of to the earlier point that I love being a generalist. I think coming in-house and, and being at this company has enabled me to, to really become the ultimate gen- generalist over my day-to-day. It's very, very typical, isn't it, for us to to have so many different subject matters come across the desk in, in just one day. And then I, I find in my practice that no two days are the same. That's for yeah. sure. Well, that's what we were looking for, wasn't it? I mean, you, you were, as you say, not wanting to niche down and specialize. And, and so you haven't. But also, in a way, you have been able to develop that domain expertise in, in the sustainability piece and, and being the spearhead of that, that program for your company. So I love that you've got the legal 
but you've also got another portfolio there that's demanding a, a new skill set. So it's, yeah, wow, there's a lot in that and global as well. I can certainly relate to the time zone managing. I'd love to know how many lawyers you have in your team or how big how big your team is just generally. So lawyers in my team at probably seven today. I'm going to get that wrong. It kind of goes up and down, but and then three amazing paralegals are on the team as well. Uh, so it's a small legal team, but we have a, a broad footprint. Uh, so we, we cover US, uh, we have in the UK and in the EU uh, as well. We are responsible for, for some operations in APAC. Uh, I, I still need to add a head of legal to, to meet the APAC work. And we do have a couple people in Australia. I have a small Australian entity that, that we we provide services to. How do you manage your team being dispersed around the globe? That has been interesting because until the pandemic hit, I managed by being on the road all the time. I I traveled at least three weeks a month and and often four. And then, you know, of course, that all just ground to a halt all of a sudden. And I've been uh, locked down since I think my last trip was late February. And so we've really, we've had to learn how to, how to work together just like everyone else purely using technology. And what, I, what I find is, yeah, I have to pay a lot of attention to my, my touch points. So making sure that I have just the right level of, of individual and team meeting time and then opportunities for communication that are, that are not as time bound. So we did something I did at the beginning. I just started, you know, a, a Teams chat with my whole team that's really exclusively, you know, fun stuff. Like it's pictures that I'll put up a picture of me with the dog or or a fun video or something like that. And trying to create those those little touch points that not everybody has to be engaged in at the same time, but create that that sense of a team bond. Do you think you'll travel as much once the world opens back up? I don't think travel will go back to what it was before. I don't think business travel will. I think it it will come back and I will travel again. But for a lot of business people, uh, it was just the travel had gotten to a very frenzied pitch. And if you you think about it from all the, if you look at all the, the loyalty and the rewards programs and so forth, there's a whole you know, giant group of people that that was, that's just was their, their day-to-day, everyday lifestyle in terms of, you know, flying somewhere different every week. And, and I don't think that is coming back. And I, I think that's a good thing. I, I miss it being able to see people in person a lot, but it is a huge carbon footprint, you know, all of the flying around. And so when it was, we did our first, as, as this, global organization, our structure, we did our first footprint assessment and travel was we're B2B services. It was our largest category and you know, going after that carbon footprint means reducing our travel. And it's also a health issue. I mean, the, the over the last year, I'm, I'm tangibly healthier than I have been in, in years because I can, you know, make my own food. I can actually get my exercise. So it, there's a lot of, of benefits being at home. Yeah, for sure. And sleep. No more jet lag. Yeah, that too. 
That's such a good point. It goes directly to carbon footprint, and there's such a such a quick win for a company that wants to reduce that or to be, you know, taking it seriously is to stop flying, you know, on a whim, really. So, it's yeah, that's a it's a really great point. I do have a question here that I skipped. I I want to know what one myth about corporate sustainability is that you want to debunk. I would like to debunk that all about greenwashing. I believe there there is greenwashing out there. It does happen. But I work with companies every day that are deeply committed to having sustainable impact and to really making the world a better place and making you know, investments above and beyond what is required for the business to bring their carbon footprint neutral, to reduce their water consumption, to really even, you know, looking at the health impacts of their activities on their communities and how can they improve those health impacts. And it, there's, there's a tremendous amount of desire in the business community to, to have a real difference. Uh, and it, it's not just a branding movement. So you sound largely optimistic about the, the corporate buy-in. I, I think that's what I, I'm getting there. And you, you seem to have a, it's a really refreshing take because I think we can get a, a little cynical sometimes about the branding exercise or the greenwashing, as you say. I love that your insight there is that there there does seem to be some deeper change agents that are that are pushing from within companies. So I yeah, I really love that. Thank you for sharing that. Really interesting for in the, in the U.S. because uh, <coughs> Yeah, the Trump administration for four years wasn't exactly moving the ball forward on these issues. And what I feel like I saw during that time was so companies just step into into the gap. And I think they, they that the almost that absence at the federal level of, of leadership on this particular topic around environment and climate and sustainability caused companies to make even bolder commitments and to stretch themselves beyond what they, they may have done had they thought, oh, the government's just going to take care of this. So I, I just feel really positive about that, that movement, and it, it really hasn't lost steam. Uh, even with the pandemic, uh, it, it is still there, and that energy is still there. Hmm. Interesting, interesting point around corporations stepping up into a space where government leadership might be lacking. I, I do think that corporations are really stepping into that space where government may not have, have been as active or been taking the lead in terms of sustainability. Uh, but I also believe there is a big role for government in that space that still needs to be filled. Uh, what we're seeing, you know, we need a global alignment on policies around climate and disclosure to really set the bar. Uh, If you look at what we're going to have to accomplish to stay on the 1.5 degree track that scientists say we need to be on, it's it's massive. And I do think that there is a big role for good policy in making sure that we uh, encourage and maintain the right behaviors to get us there. Well said. Christine, I'm interested in what you have read or listened to recently that has inspired you. I, I'm a biography person. I love 
reading uh, biographies, I always find that I learn a lot uh, since uh, in reading in about other people's lives. And my favorite recently has been The Splendid in the Vile by Eric Larson. And it is really a story about Churchill during the Blitz. Oh, wow. Yeah, his leadership. And if you, you, know, you think about leadership through adversity, there's no better example. Mm. I never, I, I've of course seen a million things on World War II, but I hadn't focused that distinctly on the Blitz before. And just the, the resoluteness and the strength moving through that was really inspiring. I have one last question for you. I want to know what you are excited about at the moment. I'm excited about spring. <laughs> Lovely. I, uh, I have a, a, a little Boston Terrier uh, that I get outside, and it is beautiful and sunny and about uh, 65, 70 degrees here now. We get all around the neighborhood, uh, visit all the other dogs and the people, and just enjoy this season. So for me, just having that getting the the winter rain out and and being able to enjoy that time is magical. Beautiful. That that does sound lovely. And I, I wish you I wish you and your, your little dog both a wonderful spring as we go into winter. So, but oh, an Australian my winter is not a real winter. I can't yeah. I really I really can't complain. It's a tropical we might go below sixty degrees maybe if we're lucky. Oh. <laughs> it's 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 really mild. Was there anything else that I didn't cover or any last words that you you wanted to leave for the listeners? I was thinking about your listeners and you're saying that you have a lot of law students and early lawyers. And Mm. I'm wondering, did I cover a couple of thoughts on, okay, once you're in-house, how do you get involved in things outside the law department? That's a, that's a really great point. How how do you do that? How do you find your way outside of that purely legal focus? One of the things that I, I love about being in-house in a business is that there are so many different ways to become involved with things that uh, may not be within your, your legal focus, may not be your exact uh, expertise, but can really add some, some breadth to your daily activities. And, and so when I first started as a, as a new lawyer in-house, you know, one of the, the first things I did was get involved with our initial corporate social responsibility strategy. And at that time, yeah, it was a kind of a volunteer action led by a cross-functional team. A lot of times with those sorts of efforts, you need uh, different views from different parts of the company. So that means there's, there's opportunity to step up. And by doing that and kind of taking on some of those those, uh, volunteer projects outside the legal department, you really need a cross-section and you can pursue pursue some of your passions a little bit more. And uh, there's, I just would encourage people to kind of step into saying yes uh, when, when those things come up. I love that. Saying yes to other opportunities. That's such great advice. And when you're earlier in your career, you just never know where they might lead you. So if it piques your interest, even just sparks a a sense of curiosity or, or maybe you do want to get a little bit more involved, 
get involved, I think is what you're saying. It's it's wonderful advice, Christine. Thank you, Mel. It's been really wonderful talking to you, talking to you in your reporting. And I am just in awe of what you've done with the podcast. I love listening to it. Uh, and I've learned so much from your other guests. I'm so happy to hear that. And a big shout out to Lisa Lang who connected us because she is wonderful and a wonderful episode with her a, a few back there that I would recommend to anyone who hasn't listened to it. So that's it, that we're going to leave it there. Thank you for explaining things and giving a sense of optimism to this space. I think I think that's really wonderful and I'm so grateful to have spent this hour with you. Thank you very much, Mel. Thank you for listening to this episode of Council. Please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss future episodes. And while you're there, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review for this podcast. Tell me what you'd love to hear more of and where you are listening from. I'd love to connect with you on LinkedIn, Instagram, or even Clubhouse. Check out the show notes for all of these links.